If you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're looking at verses 14 through 16. Just a few verses this morning. I promise that uh, I will preach it all. <laughs> I'm not going to give any time, okay? Not give any time. Because I know you're all staying for spaghetti lunch anyway, right? You know what I mean? So, all right, good deal. You know, when we think about this, this is very much talking about uh, Jesus is our greater help. Jesus is our greater help. And when I think about greater help, I have uh, a couple of things. When I think about that, the first thing that comes to my mind is the old Beatles song. Help, I need somebody help. Not just anybody help, you know. We need that help. The Beatles needed help too. They needed Jesus. But they needed some help. But you know, I also think about the song by Casting Crowns. There's a song by Casting Crowns. Maybe some of you have heard it. It says, I lift my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You've probably heard that one before too. Maybe not quite like that because I, I missed a note and had to make it up as I went. But that comes out of Psalm 121, 1 and 2. You know, I had that Beatles song on my mind, so I couldn't quite find that note. Anyway, just making excuses, whatever. Uh, Psalm 121, 1 and 2, which says, I lift my eyes to the hills, for where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we often do need help, don't we? We all need help in, in a variety of ways. And our Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is our greater help. Now, we can receive help in a lot of different ways. And it's, it's healthy to look for help. Uh, sometimes you need physical help from the doctor. Sometimes you need mental help from the therapist. Sometimes you need uh, spiritual help from the pastor. But I want to tell you, if you want overall health and the greatest help, you go to Jesus Christ. That's where we go. In Hebrews, here we go. Jesus makes God's help available to you. And so far, as we've, we've walked through several weeks of the book of Hebrews that the author has written to give us an understanding of who Jesus is. And uh, so far, we've heard him reference Christ as the high priest. But today, we are going to dive in a little bit deeper on what that means, about how Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And after this, the next several chapters will direct us to how Christ is our high priest as well. So today, we will evaluate how Christ is our great high priest. He is great, isn't he? He's a great God. Um, just as that choir special we just sang, hallelujah to the one who, who, who has loved us and cared for us and died for us and, and took away our sin. Uh, what a wonderful thing that he has done for us. He is great. First Chronicles 16.25 tells us, For the Lord is great, and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all other gods. That's who he is. No other god deserves our worship or deserves our praise. Isaiah 12 verse 6, the latter part there, says, For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. That's who he is. He is our high priest. In Leviticus 21, if, if you want to flip there, you can. I'm not going to get... April to go there because I'm just going to be doing highlights of the different verses there. But in Leviticus chapter 21, we have the outline or the uh, responsibilities of the high priest. Of the high priest or expectations of the high priest. In verses 1 through 4 of Leviticus 21, the high priest cannot defile himself by touching a dead body except for his nearest kin. 
Like if, if they have a loss in, in their family, he could deal with that. But beyond that, he couldn't do anything. In verse 5, we find that the high priest can't make themselves bald. They can't shave their heads bald. Nor can they trim the edges of their beard. Okay? Um, verse 6 tells us that the high priest can't profane the name of God. In verse 7, the high priest can't marry a divorced woman or a promiscuous woman. Some of you may say, I thought the high priest couldn't marry at all. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. Verse 9, his daughter cannot be a harlot or else he will be burned with fire. Wow, yeah, didn't know that was in there, did you? Yep, that's the truth too. Verse 10 tells us he cannot tear his clothes or uncover his head. Verse 11 says he can't go near a dead body even for his mom and daddy. Uh, verse 12, he cannot leave the sanctuary once he's anointed. Verse 13 and 14 says he must marry a virgin of his own people. Verse 15 tells us in Leviticus 21, he must not put down his succeeding generations. Those generations that's coming after him, he cannot put them down. He can't talk bad about him about them. Verses 17 through 21, the high priest must be without defect or handicap. And in verse 22, he must eat the bread of God, both the most holy and holy. He could eat that bread. Now, when we think about these things, that is a big responsibility of the high priest. That's a very big responsibility. And can you now begin to take in the enormity of the position and the title bestowed on Christ as our great high priest? It was a big title for him to carry. But yet he did, and he carried it fully and wisely. How should we respond to knowing that Christ is our great high priest. There's two things. We're going to look at these more in depth later in the service. But the two ways we respond is we hold fast our confession. We hold fast our confession and we come boldly to the throne of grace. So if you've now found your place, many of you have, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, let's read together God's word. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, as we have read this passage of Scripture, a very familiar passage of Scripture, many of us have heard this uh, on various occasions throughout our lives. If you've not heard it before, happy introduction to one of the greatest passages in the Bible. He is our great high priest. So he gives us a benefit, a help, that we can come before him boldly. Before, we had to come, we didn't even get a chance to come, really. We can't even come before the throne. God graces us with that opportunity. So let's, as we think about this, let's look at who Jesus is. Seeing there in verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now, we looked at the requirements earlier, just a few moments ago, from Leviticus chapter 21. And, and now we're going to look at this perspective of the people on the priest, how it's a little bit more personal. It's a little bit more personal to the people and how they understood the high priest's office. He served as their mediator and representative between the people and God. That's what he did. The Old Testament high priest, he was a descendant of Aaron. 
Moses' older brother, who was the first priest. Aaron was the first priest. The sacrificial system was one of the important enforcements of the high priest, along with the overseeing of the covenant. That was part of the job of the high priest. And he was supposed to be godly. Unfortunately, oftentimes the high priest in the Old Testament were not. And the high priest annually went into the Holy of Holies for the Day of Atonement and personally led the regular sacrifices. Now the Day of Atonement is found in Leviticus chapter 16. And in Leviticus chapter 16, um, it's, it talks about all the different things that are to happen on that Day of Atonement. It's a lot to read, and I'll read just a, a small portion of it. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. But this is, this is going to contrast how the high priest of the Old Testament had to do this once a year. But Jesus Christ, is our great high priest, went one time into the Holy of Holies. One time did he offer a sacrifice. And it was not something external of himself. It was himself. He died once for all. He was the atonement. His blood, his death, is enough to cover everyone that would so call upon the name of the Lord in faith by the grace of God. It's enough. But this blood that was done in the Old Testament, it had to be done on a regular basis. And as I've said earlier, you know, the high priest in the Old Testament, after he was finished, he had to remain standing because his job was never done. He was sacrificing on behalf of others. He was sacrificing on behalf of himself. And then on the Day of Atonement, it was a great responsibility there. But Jesus, it tells us, when he finished the work on the cross and he rose from the grave and he ascended back to the Father, it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father because everything that needed to be done for our salvation to sub to uh, be our substitute was done and finished. Jesus did all the work. All we have to do is believe by grace through faith and we may be saved. And we place that faith in Jesus Christ and He alone and our salvation comes from Him. So where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Look there if you have your Bibles open to Leviticus 16. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Then Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering. And one ram as a burnt offering. He talks about you know, a goat, a child of a goat is a kid, just so you're not confused there. Okay? Uh, verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. 
But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And shall kill the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fire. Bring it inside the veil, and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. You see, this is very descriptive. He better be taking notes. Good thing we've got it written down, right? Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place. Until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, It shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, and put on his garments, Come out and offer his burnt offering and burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. And they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you. That you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen cloths and holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar and all the people of the assembly. 
This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Whew. It's a lot of responsibility, a lot of things to remember to do, right? Aren't we glad we don't have to do that anymore? I'm glad I ain't got to do that no more on behalf of y'all. <laughs> wow, that's a lot to remember. Goodness gracious. I can't even remember where I put my water bottle down from earlier in the morning. Goodness gracious, that'd be a lot to remember. But you know, Jesus, when he came, he was the atonement. He entered one time, one time for us all. How amazing is that Jesus is our great high priest. And today and in the coming chapters, in the coming weeks, we will learn that Jesus is our true and great high priest. We will gain an understanding of what he does for us. But let us first look clearly into the first lines of this text. So let's look there back in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, unlike any of these earthly priests, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what makes our Lord so great? There's several reasons that our Lord is so great. It's the reason why we can have joy. It's the reason why we can have worship. It's the reason why we sing praise. It's because he is so great. The first reason why he is so great is he passed through the heavens. Unlike the, the priests of the Old Testament who had to do all these other things, they were passing through what was symbolic of the heavens, what was symbolic of the throne room. Jesus was in the throne room. Jesus passed through the heavens. It's what he did. And uh, all these things in the Old Testament were just a shadow of the good things that were to come in the true form that was Jesus Christ and is Jesus Christ. And we find that passage of Scripture in Hebrews 10.1. And passing through the heavens, Jesus had to be holy. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us this. He who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or has ever seen, or can see, is speaking of God. And Jesus passed through. Jesus saw him. Jesus told the people, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he was in the flesh. He was manifested unto us. So people could see and experience God incarnate. God in person. And this expression of, of how God is, he lives in unapproachable light. It just talks about his separateness, if that's such a word, of God. Or the uniqueness of God. Another word for holy. He's just holy. He's separate. He's set apart. That's who he is. And, but uh, he is also transcendent and above. He is dignified. He is set apart. So let us, just, let us just consider for a moment. The high priest, he only took the sacrifices into the Holy of Holies once a year, once per year. But that was just a shadow or a model. I mean, it was just really like a model of the real throne room that is in heaven. But Jesus went into the real place of the holiest. He went in to the Father. Something no one could ever have done and no one since has done except for the fact that the Son has stepped into that presence and he's been able to be present there with God the Father. And you know, we, when we think about this, Hebrews is very much writing 
to uh, much of the Jewish uh, congregation and, the, and those that were Jewish before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And you think about in between Malachi and in between Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. And you think about all they were waiting for. They were waiting for that Messiah. They were waiting for that prophet, priest, and king. They were longing for that. And they were waiting. They were hoping they were dreaming and desiring year in and year out. Could you imagine what that's like? You know, we talked about that a little bit last week. Very, very, in a very short amount of time, we looked at how 40 years, we talked about 40 years, didn't we? They were wandering in the desert for 40 years. Could you imagine 400 years without a word from God? That, that would be so depressing and sad. People, I'm sure, were getting to a point where, you know, did, did we really follow the right God? But then God comes back, and He doesn't just come back in, in, a, in a momentary time. He doesn't just come back for a blip. He doesn't come back as He did for Gideon, as the angel of the Lord, and spoke to him for a moment and was gone. And in the other pre-incarnate Christ revelations as Jesus came that we find in the Old Testament. But yet here, Jesus comes and he's born into a virgin and he lived this life for 32 years thereabout. And, and uh, got to, people got to see him and experience him and see God in the flesh. And they got to experience God firsthand. Could you imagine the joy there was on many of those that were waiting and hoping and dreaming and desiring. But you can also understand the challenge of really realizing that this had finally come. You know, many of us, I, I think about the vacation that we just went on out west. You know, Taryn really wanted us to, to go on that trip for her senior trip. And we were hoping to, but it just didn't quite work out. But we, you know, we look back on it and we're like, did, you know, sometimes I just wonder. I mean, like, I know it happened. We took pictures. I was there. But you think, wow, I mean, like, we planned all this time, and then all of a sudden it was there, and we left. And we experienced it, and we drove back, and we drove, and we drove, and drove, and we drove back. And then you think, wow, did that, you know what I mean? I know it occurred. I know it was there. I know I experienced it. But the, but the time, you wonder. So the Jewish people, they were in one, I mean, I know all the stories. Our people experienced that. They've written it down. It's chronicled in the Bible. But man, it's been 400 years. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The words I speak come from the Father. I don't speak of my own accord. I speak only what the Father gives me. And some believed and some did not. Which, we can kind of understand that, right? The second reason why that he is such a great high priest is he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And, and we know that he was there in the beginning. In the beginning was God. And the spirit of God hovered above the face of the deep. And God spoke things into existence. And then we know we look over into John 1 and it says, And the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know God was all present in the beginning. Jesus was there in the beginning. We know in Colossians 1 that all things hold together by Jesus. Everything was made in him, through him, and by him. We should read that in Colossians 1. Jesus is the Son of God. 
We also see because he's a great high priest in the way he stands in, unlike any other earthly priest, is the fact of the line that he comes from. Aaron, we read a lot just a moment ago out of the Old Testament, Aaron was the beginning of the line of the earthly high priest. But Jesus has a better line than Aaron. Jesus has a better line than him. You know, the Israelites' priests, just, just to name a few of them in the line of Aaron, there was Aaron, Eleazar, Phinehas, uh, Abishua, and the line goes on and on in names I probably can't pronounce. <laughs> but Jesus comes in a different line, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment. Jesus comes in the line of Melchizedek, which is an interesting character in the Bible. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But he comes in that line. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, the thing that makes him such a great high priest is he is both human and divine. He's not just human. He's human and divine. He's deity. He's God and man. And he could do something that no earthly high priest could do. The third reason why he is our great high priest, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now I want you to notice how the author speaks this line in a negative way. You see that. He says there in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. By phrasing or framing this in this way, the author brings about a perspective of what Jesus can do. About what he can do. So in truth, we see Jesus can do for us because he has experienced the temptation to be weak as we have. He's experienced the temptation to be weak, to give in. But in this moment of weakness, in this moment of weakness, when Satan was trying to tempt him, we know Jesus had not eaten, and we know whenever we're hungry and we ain't eating, we get hangry, we get impatient. I don't know if you've ever been around folks like that. I'm one of them. You know, uh, there's all kinds of stuff. And, and I could say things that I really don't mean. You know, I could do things I really don't mean to do. But here's Jesus, and he's being taken out into the wilderness uh, or, or he goes out there, the Spirit led him out there. You know, people are confused. The Spirit led him out there, and then Satan tempted him while he's out there. But Jesus, in that moment for weakness to prevail, excuse me, but in this moment for weakness to prevail over discipline, discipline prevailed over weakness. Jesus was disciplined. And listen, guys, I, I talk about this a good bit. Memorizing scripture is so vitally important. It needs to be a discipline for each and every one of us. We can't just let the word of God just be something that gets poured over us like a fire hydrant on Sunday morning, either in Sunday school or in worship. The word of God needs to be trickled into us like a hose pipe on a hot summer day after you've been running around and you get out there and you just turn that hose pipe on. Some of y'all may not, I think most of y'all probably have experienced this. You might have even went down to the creek where you catch the crawdads and dip some water out of there. But you turn on that hose pipe and you pull it up and you just drink. And you come back to it and you come back to it and you come back to it because the hose pipe and the water's there all day. It's there all day. And that's the way the Word of God needs to be with us. We come back to it day after day. Not just day after day, moment by moment, time after time. And that doesn't always mean that you've got to whip out the Bible itself, the physical Bible. God's given you a mind. He's created us in His image. That doesn't mean that, that we're, we're flesh and bone. It means that He's given us a soul and a spirit, the ability to have knowledge and wisdom and understanding and to retain what we got. We've got to get in the Word of God. And call that back up. 
We need to be able to call out. And that's what Jesus did. Everything he did to Satan's temptations to, to make him weak, Jesus called back and recalled from his heart and his mind the Word of God. The Word of God. But you know, we, we do have our weaknesses, don't we? We do have our weaknesses. I know I've got weaknesses. Some places I'm stronger than others and other places I'm weak. But you know, here are some of the weaknesses, if you will, that we bring to the table. We bring a weakness that is physical. We bring a physical weakness. You know, I, over the past several years, I've tried to get in the gym more often to try to get myself in better shape. Um, sometimes I've been pretty faithful. Sometimes I've been pretty lax. The last couple of months has just been chaotic. And I ain't been to the gym maybe five times in the past three, in the past two months, two and a half months, which is not saying much. And, uh, but we're physically weak. Sometimes we can't handle the things that we, that we used to could or think we can. We bring that weakness to the table. We also, we're morally weak. We bring a weakness of our morality to the table. We, we have to come to God and say, God, help me. In my morality, help me to make wise choices to discern what is healthy and what is strong, what is right for my life. We come spiritually weak, obviously. The scripture tells us we are dead in our trespasses apart from Christ. We, we are terribly weak spiritually apart from Christ. And we will be weak in Christ if we're not in the word of God. It's a place where we need to be. We need to be in the Word of God so that we may know the will of God, so we may do the work of God. It's where we need to be. We need to be in the house of God so we can have the Word of God preached to us so we'll know the will of God so we can go out and do the work of God from our church as well. We come intellectually weak. We don't have understanding a lot of times, you know? There's a lot of Scripture in the Bible that's confusing. I was speaking with our youth, not this Sunday, but last Sunday, and talking about Bible translations. J.R. was reading from a, a King James Version Bible. Now listen, ain't nothing wrong with the King James Version Bible. It's a great Bible. But there's different translations out there for different reading levels. And we need to make sure that we're understanding what we're reading. And don't get me wrong, I believe the Holy Spirit can teach you if you're reading the King James Version and you're struggling reading it. I believe He can. But, but why make it so difficult? You know what I mean? Why make it so difficult? Get a good translation. I like the New King James. That's what I preach out of every Sunday morning. It stays close to the King James, but yet it makes it a little bit easier to read and understand, you know. And other translations have been made so that younger children can read it. It's not a goal of trying to distort people or lead them away from any kind of truth. It's really just so people can grasp it a little easier. Amen. I like the New Living Translation. If I'm going to go to one that's just really easy to read, I'd recommend the New Living Translation. It stays very close. Uh, I've used this illustration before, and I know I'm running out of time, but I'm just going to tell you this. One time I was preaching, I was preaching, and uh, I looked up John MacArthur's commentary on a passage of Scripture. And John MacArthur explained that passage of Scripture. And many of you know who John MacArthur is, one of the, one of the best commentators and Bible teachers. It's been around for a long time. And, uh, and then I got to looking in the New Living Translation. In the New Living Translation, in, in that particular translation, everything that John MacArthur said was in the New Living Translation. Amen. And I was like, well, you know, I've got my New King James sitting over here. i got my NLT sitting over here. John MacArthur smacked down in the middle. He's saying, this is what this means. Okay, well, that makes sense. So don't, don't, let, don't let a translation keep you from an understanding of God's Word. 
Okay? Now, I've got some that I don't really like, but I'm not going to get into that right now from the pulpit. But I'm just telling you right now, I think your new King James is probably your best bet. Anyway, so let's keep moving. He can sympathize with our weakness. He sees that we are physically weak, we're spiritually weak, we're morally weak, intellectually weak. You know, sometimes we have a weakness of personality, right? Some of you don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it sometimes. Sometimes we have a personality problem. Because a personality is, is, is a, it's a hodgepodge of everything we've grown up around. Whether it be mom and dad, our community, whatever it may be. We might be stubborn. We might be too passive. We might be, there's all kind of issues that could come. And we bring this with our personality problems. And we can't bring our personality into it. Let me just, let me just read this so that I can say this correctly. Sometimes even our built personality can be a weakness. From those whom we have been raised, our community and our peer groups have all influenced our personalities. And from this, sometimes we can bring weakness. We can bring weakness. So we need to evaluate not just these other things, but our personality. Our personality can be a problem. So how can Jesus sympathize with our weaknesses? How can he do that? Well, it's because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's how he can sympathize with our weaknesses. This word tempted, tempt means to be put to the test, to be put on trial, or enticement to evil. And Jesus on the cross, he became familiar with our sin. He, he, he became familiar with all the things that we have dealt with. All the things. The, the consequences of that, he felt that on the cross. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he being God made him, being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is in Christ that we get to experience and become the righteousness of God. It is not around Him. It's not about Him. That scripture says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot of people who might be about Jesus. There might be a lot of people who sit in a church that's about Jesus. But I want to tell you this. If you want to know the righteousness of God, you as an individual need to be in Christ Jesus. This isn't a roundabout faith. This is an inside faith. It starts inside. We confess with our mouth Jesus Lord and believe in our heart God raised us from the dead. That doesn't mean your beating heart is going to make a word. What it's saying is this. It's all of who you are. I preached through that several uh, months back about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's all of who you are. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 gives us this passage of Scripture out of the English Standard Version. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus' temptation was a greater temptation than any individual person would ever experience. In Luke 4 2, it says, For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. 
He was tempted in a way many of us will never be tempted. He was tempted in a way many of us will never be tempted. And Jesus dealt with temptation from all of Satan's fiery darts, as some translations have uh, put that out, meaning he knows the full extent of temptation's force. In 1 John 3, 5, it tells us this in the English Standard Version. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So through all that, he can sympathize with us as human beings because he became man. He became man. All the things that, that the devil uses to entice us, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, we see all those things in Matthew 4, 1 John 2, and Mark 1. We see all those things. But we, we, are, we can be grateful that he was tempted but yet did not give in. And he didn't give in because he had the word of God. He knew the word of God. In understanding Jesus' help is greater, what should we do? We should do two things. We need to hold fast to our confession. And we should come boldly to the throne of grace. That's the two things we need to do. So what is our confession? Our confession is the gospel. But most particularly, when we look at this text right here, if you flip back over to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, this is the confession. This is the confession we should hold to. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That is our confession. That's our confession that Jesus Christ came from the heavens, came down, was born of a virgin, lived a life without sin, died on the cross in our place for our sins, was dead, was buried, and rose again three days later. And he's coming back. That's our confession. And we should hold fast to this confession. And what I find so amazing about these two things, it says, let us. Let us. So this is a call to the individual and to the church. To the individual and to the church. That we as individuals need to hold fast to our confession. And we as a church must hold to the confession. We've got to hold to the confession. The gospel, the good news. And we need to come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace. <clears throat> what does this mean? Boldly does not mean with an attitude. It doesn't mean with arrogance. It means to come understanding what Christ has done. What He's done on our behalf, in our place, and we can come boldly. I don't have to cower in fear at Jesus Christ as, as I would if I would have died without Him, but I could come because i got a personal relationship with Him. It's just like years ago. I'm going to use this illustration, and, and then I'm going to move on down a little bit quickly. Never forget going on vacation with my, with my parents when I was real little. I think it was in Townsend, Tennessee. So very close, if I remember right, they used to do these Indian shows up on top of this plateau. You'd have to cross across this little swinging bridge kind of deal. It was long. It went above a creek. I, I can't remember much. I was a little kid. Scared me to death. I didn't like it. But my daddy 
was with me. My daddy was with me. And not only was my daddy with me, my daddy wanted to prove that he's got me no matter what situation I'm in. So you know what my dad did? He did what, what scared me to death. But at the same time, I trusted my dad. He put me on his shoulders. <laughs> okay? He put me on his shoulders and we crossed that bridge. And that bridge moved. Okay? The bridge moved. But my daddy was steady and sure all the way across that bridge. And when I think about Jesus Christ and I think about how I can come boldly to that throne, I, I know that I don't come in there on my own two feet. I don't come in there in my own pride. I don't come in there in what I've done. I come in there on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. I come in there on what he's done. I come in there on the, on the power of God and in the power of his son. I don't come in there in my own strength. And that's the reason why you and I can come boldly before the throne because we come with an advocate in Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing that we think about how God does that for us, how we can come boldly. And listen, what an amazing invitation that we can enter as those with the true rights of priests. Just as the Old Testament priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, now we too, because the blood of the Lamb has been placed upon our account, now we can enter into the Holy of Holies.